0: Welcome back to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. I'm your host, Mary Garner-McGee. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. Soundboard also comes to you as a podcast that belongs to the Teej FM network. That's T-E-J F-M. Tune in, subscribe, and find out what's happening in your community and around the state. And if you're a fan of Soundboard, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends about the show. In a few minutes, we hear from members of our Charlottesville community about civic engagement. Plus, later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Golaska about campaign finance in this cycle's state elections. But first, I sit down with Charlottesville tomorrow to discuss the Albemarle County School Board's decision to change the name of Kale Elementary. Today we're joined by Charlottesville Tomorrow reporter Billy Jean-Louis and editor Elliot Robinson. Billy's been covering the Albemarle County School Board's decision on whether or not to rename Kale Elementary School. So we've been talking about this story for a while, but will you remind us how the issue came up?
1: Of course. So Paul Kale was superintendent of Albemarle County Public School from 1947 to 1967 and was the namesake of Kale Elementary School. So... One part of your question was how the issue came up. The process was set in in motion in October of last year when Lorenzo Dickerson, who is the web and social media specialist for county schools. He showed the school board a video he created that highlighted uh, segregation in American schools and the challenges of the first black students who integrated the county's public schools. Now, the presentation, which was not created specifically uh, for the board, referenced a 1956 article in Commentary magazine that, through extensive paraphrasing, stated that Cale Sr. argued against integration. So afterward, some school board members called for a review of building names.
0: What were the Albemarle County schools like when Kale was superintendent?
1: I mean, uh, it was the same time during the U.S. Supreme Court's 1954 Brown versus Board of Education ruling. So I think that anyone who's who knows About this case knows what it was like in school but one of the arguments that the Kell supporters made was during this time it was the first time that the superintendent hired black educators in central office
0: back in September the advisory board recommended changing the name and last week the school board voted on their recommendation what was that meeting like
1: I mean there were six people who spoke during the public comment session Two spoke in favor of keeping the name and four spoke to rename the school. Now, board members talked about why they voted to change the name. Only one board member voted to keep the name. Uh, his name is Jason Buyaki. David Oberg was not present at last week's meeting, but according to a statement read by Chairman Drano Alcaro, Oberg said he was in favor of renaming the school. So many of the board members expressed why they voted to rename the school. One of the board members, Graham Page, said if the views expressed in a 1956 article in the magazine didn't fully represent former Albemarle County school superintendent Paul Kell, he assumed that Kell would have asked for a correction or a retraction. So that was one of the reasons that he provided to why he voted to rename the school. Another reason that he provided was the fact that he questioned Kell's relationship with the board at the time. Page also said that he couldn't imagine any board selecting a superintendent whose values and expectations didn't align with theirs. I want to talk a little bit about what, you know, the board member had to say, Kate Acuff. He said that she has no doubts that there were many accomplishments made during Kel's administration. However, she's not in favor of memorializing that time and naming schools after people can be an issue in that the concept is heavily tilted towards white men. And then she also said that the division should attach a name to the school that reflects the aspirations of students.
0: So they voted to rename the school and what's the next step in the process?
1: At the last board meeting, Superintendent Matt Haas said if the board accepts his recommendation to rename the school, the committee will reconvene with the Kell community to develop recommendations for a new school.
0: What is the history of school segregation in Charlottesville and Albemarle? And how is that history relevant to this debate?
1: Well, I'd like to quickly talk about one of the board meetings that we had this year. So, a letter found by University of Virginia doctoral student Margaret Thornton. In the letter written in the 1950s, a woman identified as Miss Smith recommended that school officials create a program to test children because city schools at the time were ordered to integrate, right? So students who tested well would be put into a majority what accelerated program. So, It also acknowledged that some of these gifted and above-average children will be blacks, thus satisfying the court orders and showing enough integration to satisfy federal officials. Now, let's talk about Quest, for instance. Quest came into being about 20 years later and operates similarly to what was described in Smith's uh, letter. Quest is the name for the gifted program for the city schools, but then gifted programs exist in both county and the city. By state law, schools are required to have gifted programs. You can't understand what's going on today if you don't understand the history. You have to look at
2: the full context of what was going on. One example was when I worked in Richmond at the time, Henrico County, was debating renaming a school that was named for Governor Harry Byrd. And the documents that they had didn't say an awful lot, but they had to look at the context of that school was built in what was a majority black neighborhood. And it was during the time when they had to integrate their schools. And Governor Byrd at the time was completely against integration. So it became clear to them that The reason that that school was put there and given that name was almost just to get into the face of the black community that they were forced to serve.
0: Here in Charlottesville, we've had a lot of conversations about the Confederate statues downtown and who is worthy of public memorialization. In what ways is this debate about school names similar or different?
2: I think in a way it's it's very similar because uh, these are places that are representing the community and also displaying that the, the, the people who we value and that's the tricky thing with naming something after a person is that as time goes on you may find out things that make you question why something is named for that person and then you then get people into dividing camps of all of the good that that person did outweighs these negative things that we found and part of the solution I think would be to give a bit more space between, or for example, a lot of these schools are named after people who are deceased. If you give some more time between when that person dies and when something is named for them. And then also with like the Confederate statues, for example, like there's times when opinions about things shift and we should be able to be a bit more flexible of when community standards and values change that we're able to switch things out. And, It's not completely killing history because you can find these things in history books. You can look up other things and research them. And we should be able to continuously update things to reflect how the community stands at the current time.
0: Do you all see this vote leading to more name changes in other departments of the city or the university?
2: I think so. For example, earlier this year, The Charlottesville City Council voted to officially change the namesake of Preston Avenue from a figure in the Confederacy to a black educator. There's also a petition circulating around UVA to rename the Alderman Library since he said things about eugenics and racism and people feel that he's not an appropriate person for a library to be named for.
0: So we've been talking a lot about this really important Albemarle County School Board vote, but y'all just had a candidate forum for the school board elections in Charlottesville and Albemarle last night. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so of course, last night we had a candidate forum for people running for both city and county school boards. People are wanting to know more about these candidates they can go online. Our government reporter, Charlotte Woods, did a phenomenal job at putting together a voter guide so that uh, voters can be educated about these candidates. I feel like yesterday, one of the questions that really got the candidates talking was a question from the audience in regards to having more police officers on campus I think the question was first directed to Lachandra and because at one point she did support the issue of having more police officers on campus. But then she said, having thought about it, she no longer stands for that. Then other candidates had a lot to say when it comes to having you know, police officers on campus.
0: We end this segment as we do every week by asking the folks at Charlottesville tomorrow, what's on your calendar this week?
1: Charlottesville Tomorrow started this weekly series where we interview uh, principals in Albemarle County public schools and Charlottesville city schools. My latest article in the series, it was about Dr. J.C. Turner. He is a longtime educator in the area. And he's now leading Buford Middle School. And then he's leading Buford Middle School at a at a critical time where, for several years, city school officials have talked about the reconfiguration of Buford and Walker. So we had the chance to talk to him about that and why he came to the city and some of the uh, things that he wants to accomplish while he's here leading uh, Buford Middle School and as for
2: me at the end of next week uh charlotte woods who's our government and climate reporter and i will be traveling to richmond to a climate reporting workshop it will be led by a good slate of people who are knowledgeable about climate change including the meteorologist for the richmond times dispatch which is an interesting position that they have i've never heard of another newspaper that has somebody who distinctly talks about the weather at all times. So I think it will be a very informative session and we will come back with some ideas of presenting more climate stories to the area.
0: Thank you all so much for coming in. No
2: problem. Thank you.
0: Billy Jean-Louis is a reporter covering education for Charlottesville tomorrow. Elliot Robinson is the editor. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teach FM Network. WTJU and Teach FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. However, opinions expressed on the show are not the positions of the University of Virginia. Over the summer and the past couple of weeks, Molly Strackler, Melth Rockmorton, Matt Vallott, Caroline Hockenbury, and I have been canvassing the community asking about civic engagement. How are our neighbors involved in this community? What does civic engagement mean? What are the most pressing issues in Charlottesville? Here are the answers.
3: I think civic engagement is really a reflection of the way that we go about co-constructing our democracy. Democracy is not a thing or a product. Democracy is a process.
0: Walter Heinecke is a professor in the Curry School of Education and Human Development at UVA. He teaches a class called Intro to Citizenship and Activism, a critical examination of Jefferson's university.
3: I think you have to show up between elections, so that means you have to vote. But the more important thing is what do you do with your time in between elections? I think joining and volunteering for organizations, like for instance, I just volunteer for the Charlottesville Low-Income Housing Coalition and the People's Coalition on Criminal Justice Reform. I think there's a lot of ways that people can get involved in Charlottesville, especially with social justice efforts. You know, the Democratic Socialists of America, people can volunteer for Black Lives Matter or standing up for racial
4: justice. I'm involved in community here just by coming on the mall and meeting different diversity of people all the time. And I really enjoy that because I'm a people person.
0: Hugh is a retired member of the Charlottesville community. Today, he's enjoying sunshine, conversation, and the day's newspaper outside of Grit Coffee.
4: I think we could be a strong community by us, just showing more love of all types of form of color and nationality of people and move on because we can't keep living in the past. It will do us no good.
0: For Hugh, community engagement is always top of mind.
4: In this community, we still need to continue working on things. Everything is not negative or positive, but we still need to move forward.
5: My name is Talia Sherman and I've lived in Charlottesville for ten years. I work at my temple twice a week and I teach Hebrew and on Wednesdays and like religious school on Sundays. And we take the kids out and we do lessons with them about like helping the community so we've made food bank donations and things like that. I think one of the things we do with them that shows the biggest impact is when we take them down to the Haven and they make cards for homeless people and they bring in food and I think them getting to see the impact that they're making at such a young age is so touching because you can really like see it on them how proud of themselves they are. I guess I was at first just motivated to like continue working at my temple after going there but I think I've definitely wanted to stick with it just because I get such good opportunities to give back to my community, and I really do love living in Charlottesville, so it's a nice way for me to
4: contribute. The housing situation, you know, the landlords and the people that give Section 8 and stuff like that should be, you know, more courteous to people that's homeless. They give you Section 8, and... They don't inspect their apartments, their apartments not healthy, they're not clean. You have to go in and clean them. If they don't inspect their apartments, it's not healthy to be in if they don't pass inspection. Mm -hmm. I'm in sort of a situation like that myself right now, yeah.
0: Are there any groups in Charlottesville that have been helpful?
4: Regenton, The Haven, social services. I mean, they gotta elect somebody that really Really cares about that certain issue. They should um, care about, you know, things like that.
6: My name is Alice Claire. I've lived in Charlottesville here for three years. From Nelson County before that, I've been here going to school at UVA, and now I'm gonna enter this workforce here in Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. I'm in the music community. I'd say, um, in addition to just performing around town, I try to go and support as many local artists as I can. Visual artists as well as musicians, but uh, I go to a lot of the venues here around town. I vote. (laughs) I'm an active consumer. (laughs) And I'm a serious consumer of uh, breweries and uh, various wineries around Charlottesville and Albemarle County as well. I think right now, with more buildings being built for offices and luxury apartments, I think affordable housing is probably the most pressing issue right now. With the new developments the Friendship Court, I'm just hoping that everything happens to not only provide more affordable housing for people, but keep it affordable. And I'd hope to see more, and I'd hope to see them including the people who are living in affordable housing and need affordable housing included in those discussions and panels as well.
7: One of the things that's most often on my mind is the inherent divide between the Charlottesville community and the community of students at UVA.
0: Dan is a fourth-year student at the University of Virginia. He writes for Seville Weekly and works at New Dominion
7: Bookshop. Kids coming in from Nova, they come down south a bit and look down on the city a little, say to themselves, well, I'm just here for the academics, I'm going to put myself in that academic bubble for the next four years, and that's exactly what they do. I think that's pretty sad because there's a lot of culture and just a lot to be seen here that's not necessarily affiliated with the university.
0: He views civic engagement as a basic responsibility.
7: And that doesn't matter whether you're a longtime resident of Charlottesville or a student here. You can still register to vote here. I think it's important to do so. I think that ties into civic engagement because it's a time of potential change. It's election season, and you would be surprised the effect that a single voice can have if you're willing and able to put your voice out there.
3: It's very important to me that everyone answer some kind of call to public service and to, you know, helping make other people's lives better as they can.
0: Sally Hudson is a professor at UVA and is running to represent the 57th District in the Virginia House of Delegates.
3: I think that we are all custodians of this community that we share, and I think it's it's incumbent upon everybody to do their part to, to make sure it's the best one we can have. Like most people, I mean, I volunteer with nonprofits. I I teach Sunday school. I am a teacher. I think every hour you invest in your community pays back tenfold. And I, I don't just mean in the kind of long run sense that you're making the world a better place. I find it incredibly energizing to invest good work and then see all of those good returns right away.
0: Tune in to WTJU 91.1 FM to hear more about civic engagement during this election season. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Teej FM Network. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. For an update on statewide news, Nathan Moore rings up our friend in Richmond.
8: Well, here on Soundboard each week, we like to talk about state news and politics, and we check in with our friend and journalist, Peter Galaska. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion and lives over in the Richmond area. Peter, good morning. Good morning. Well, the state Senate and the General Assembly, all the seats are up for re-election in just a couple weeks. November 5th is Election Day. The big news in Virginia this week is uh, campaign finance. The the Democrats have a huge amount of fundraising they've been doing for the state Senate and state uh, Assembly races this year. Take me through what's going on.
9: Yeah, well, we reported this before, but this just really underlines that, you know, it, what's happened is that the, uh, the new information has come out about uh, campaign donations and, and spending and the like. And the Democrats, who are favored somewhat in the, both the Senate and the House of Delegates, have so far raised like $31.8 million, and that's more than double what they raised in the last statewide elections or, or General Assembly elections in 2015. And um, the GOP, for example, which has always been considered the big money uh, party, is really behind. They've only raised 21 million in um, this so far uh, compared to 17.7 million in 2015. And um, a lot of this stuff comes from uh, not so much corporate donations, but individual donations, which is very interesting.
8: Yeah, what does that say about uh, this election year or just about how campaign finance is, is happening uh, around the country?
9: Well, it kind of begs the question about the continued changes you're seeing in state politics, where it used to be, you know, the, the big dogs of the Altrias and the Dominions and the corporate people really being the uh, spenders on, on donations. And now you're seeing that kind of. You know, There's been a real anti-dominion, you know, movement with a lot of, especially Democrats, refusing to take Dominion contributions. And you're seeing more individuals like uh, up up your way and uh, Michael Bills and his partner Sonia Smith have donated something like 250,000 to the Dems. And and this has been replicated by a number of big things like uh, Emily's List, uh, which, you know, is a pro-choice. Uh, pro-female organization has donated significant money uh, for the races, and on it goes. And uh, it's just more evidence of Virginia turning more blue as we go on. Mm -hmm.
8: Well, I want to talk about some of the possible implications of this. Um, You know, if... Either party maintains a majority or wins a majority, uh, depending on which one we're talking about. What does that mean for possible redistricting reform? You and I have talked a number of times about. Well,
9: redistricting reform is a very important topic. It's been around for years, and um, there has been an issue. There's a movement in the legislature, being there under under advocacy from uh, one Virginia twenty uh, twenty one, uh, which wants to to go towards a commission. Normally, in the past, what's happened is that every 10 years after an election, you have um, you know, de- redistricting, and um, and usually whoever prevails, Democrats or Republicans, you know, gets to pretty much have things their way. Well, this has led to many problems. Um, for example, the uh, Republicans have been in charge of it for you know in the recent past, a couple decades or so, and they were doing things such as packing. African-American voters into, say, one district to free up neighboring districts for for white candidates. And this has led to a number of state and federal uh, lawsuits. Um, And you've seen a lot going on. I know there have been at least three, I believe, uh, major cases where uh, the lawsuits have won uh, and the whole, you know, a number of districts have been redistricted. And this is affecting these rates. I know Kirk Cox, the Speaker of the House, a Republican in Colonial Heights, for example, um, was pretty much of a shoe in He very rarely had any competition for the last 19 years, and now he does because of redistricting. And on the federal level, this was interesting because Dave Bratt, who was the former 7th District Congressman, uh, uh, could rely on Hanover County, which is the big Tea Party area. But then he lost it in a redistricting, and that helped Abigail Spanberger, a Democrat, win the seventh. So this is, like, it's a huge, huge things. It's pretty complicated about how it works out. And there's also an issue that there might be some stirrings that – both Democrats and Republicans are having second thought about proceeding with with the special commission.
8: Yeah. The, the director of one Virginia, 2021, that advocacy organization you mentioned, uh, you know, I guess told the Virginia Mercury this week, uh, that he's been told by a few people, you know, if the other side takes over your amendments done, which is, is interesting that both parties are, are basically, you know, putting it on the other party.
9: <laughs> well, that's interesting. You know, the, um, the individual is Brian Cannon, who's of uh, 1 Virginia in 2021. And um, what surprises me there, uh, it's like sort of shame on the Democrats if they're really doing this, because they were the ones who were complaining and whining about how the GOP, the Republicans were really clobbering them with redistricting all the time. And now that they might win, they're having second thoughts. Well, that's pretty cynical. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. So I, I just, you know, we'll see what happens. But, uh, you know, a lot of states do have special commissions. And to me personally, it just makes a whole lot more sense to do it. I and mean, it's a little complicated that Virginia set up. There'd be 16 commission members divided among the picks from the General Assembly, and then citizen picks picks 8-8, you know, eight, eight, with the citizens being picked by five retired judges. And of course, at the end of the day, if they do come up with a redistricting plan, it still has to be approved by the General Assembly to proceed. So You know, who knows what's going to happen then? It could be back and forth and back and forth as one plan gets rejected and they ask for another. But we'll see.
8: Right. Well, I want to talk about a story, uh, shifting gears, I want to talk about a story that you wrote about this week. It's something I have to admit I don't think about very often at all, but it's the fuel that powers big ships that sail into Virginia ports. Uh, What's the story about? Is it environmental coverage that we do? (laughs)
9: Yeah, it's an environmental story, and it shows how international treaties and international organizations can really affect things in Virginia and the United States and around the world. And as you know, a lot of big ships, and Virginia is a very, very large shipping state, and we've got big shipyards, we've got huge port facilities, and a lot of these ships go up the Chesapeake Bay to Baltimore, for example, as well. And if you notice them, when I worked in the Tidewater area, I used to sometimes just watch the ships, and they're really fun. And, but you could always tell they were coming because they emitted a yellowish-brown kind of plume that you could see, you know, long before you could actually see the ship. They burn bunker oil, which is a really kind of cheap, low-refined fuel, and it emits a lot of sulfur and other bad stuff. So the International Maritime Organization, which is part of the United Nations, has new global rules saying that you've got to go from, like, fuel that's 3.5% sulfur to, like, 0.5% sulfur. Starts by the way, January one, and affects ships all over the world.
8: Well, as far as the benefits of this, aside from what seem like greenhouse gas emissions changes, will it also do things like improve air quality around Hampton Roads?
9: It could, because um, basically, I think you know they already have restrictions to some extent. But first, you've got the ships coming in and they're they're belching all the stuff. Another problem is is that if they dock, I mean, if you have a big container ship. A really big one. they're getting bigger and bigger with a thousand containers on them or something. and it's docking at Norfolk or docking at Portsmouth. I mean it might take the ship a number of hours to have the cranes take all the you know you know remove and, and bring in new containers you know and, and so when they, sometimes the ship's on electricity, but sometimes it isn't and they just sit there belching out smoke, it's much worse in third world countries where their you know, restrictions and, and infrastructure are, are not as sophisticated. So the thing is, is that the um, International Maritime Organization cites a study saying that these rules could save around the world 570,000 lives from 2020 to 2025. And once again, I mean, they're pushing these things, and it's by treaty, so it's not like you can't have you know, the global uh, climate change deniers and anti-regulation crowd in the United States pushing their will that much, because they're, they're going against the world, and they are going to get beaten, and
8: they have been. All right, Peter. Well, thanks for the check-in. Okay. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in the Richmond area. He writes for the blog Bacon's Rebellion.
0: Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. Hope you learned something new this week. If you did, please subscribe and share Soundboard with your friends. My name's Mary Garner McGee. Production assistance this week by Justine Baird. Our theme song is Choga Beat by Marin Lasco and Jay Pun. This is Soundboard. Catch us at wtju.net or our podcast home at FM.